Hello and welcome to the Event Lab podcast, your window into the events conversation, brought to you by Hirespace. This week, we are continuing our content focus on partnerships, sponsorships, and sales, as we have seven minutes with Mia Butler, the director of Pistachio View, for another round of quickfire questions about her, the events industry, and our content focus. And we do that by sharing great insight, using good content, really, you know, commenting on what people are saying and being involved. So I like that sense of community that sales is becoming. After that, we're speaking to Ed Curra, the creative director at Vinyl Impression, as we explore the modern face of sales in the events industry, including tips on how video can help you make a personal connection with your clients. And email is just so cold and impersonal. I, I think email, for me, is one of the biggest things that needs a revolution in our industry because uh, it just doesn't serve the purposes that I feel it, it needs to. And so video is one of the ways that I think, I, think I, I can see that changing. But first, the News Digest. On the Digest this week, we're talking robots, restaurants and redundancies. Do ticket machines spell the end of the check-in counter? How will restrictions to facial recognition technology affect the events industry? And as Jamie's Italian falls into administration, we look at the pitfalls of the modern chain restaurant. In the studio, we have News Digest veterans Charlotte Gentry, director and founder of Pure Events, and Martin Fullard, the editor of Conference News. Ed's away this week, so I'll be stepping into the hot seat. Lucky you in the hot seat. I know. Uh, well, I'll do. I'll do my best. <laughs> but uh, so this week I'm joined by Charlotte. Uh, and Martin. Lovely to see you again. <laughs> Hello, yes, very warm in the box today. Oh, so Charlotte, I know you've just got back from IMAX. How was it? It was great, actually. Um, it was very busy. Um, the weather was horrific, um, to the extent that half the flights actually couldn't get in on the um, Sunday. People who were flying in on Sunday evening couldn't actually get in because the weather was so bad. Um, and Monday evening, I think. Um but, uh, but yeah, it was good. It seemed very busy. The footfall seemed to be really impressive. Um, uh, yeah, it's just huge, isn't it? I mean, and uh, lots of people that sort of grab you down aisles, um, you know, to have a chat, which is always nice. People you haven't seen for ages. So, yeah, um, very pleased I went. Had a fabulous time at the Agency Directors Forum, which I'm going to give a quick plug to because I think they did a great job on the content and it was uh, managed and run really well um, and there were lots of really interesting people in the room um, and in fact we had a really great fortunate sort of group and team of people I think um, and we sort of uh, stuck together actually for the majority of the time that we, we were there so it was really lovely. Well I mean that was an international event but was it mainly UK agencies? It was primarily UK focused I would say there were probably 30 odd of us there and probably of those four of them probably or five maybe um I didn't feel that I was sitting on tables with lots of international mm. people um so um but it was it was yeah it was really interesting and the venue was absolutely amazing um which was the Schloss, Schloss Hotel Kronberg which um is look it's a bit like um Frankfurt's version of Bovy Castle so it felt very we felt very privileged to be staying in such a lovely establishment what was the, what was the most interesting thing you learnt while you were there? Um, actually, we were talking about um, talent and um, retention and uh, recruitment, um, and different ways in which managing you can manage your staff, etc. Um, and I think um, reverse mentorship was quite an interesting concept in terms of the junior members of the team actually mentoring the top 
senior management teams in some agencies, which I thought was a very unique way of looking at things and very valuable as well um, in terms of learning from the youngest members of the teams in different aspects. Uh, that was something somebody came out with, um, which was um, really beneficial and forward thinking. Nice. Yeah. Well, I guess hear- hearing about those dodgy flights, we've got, a, we've got an air travel <laughs> first story. Uh, Two thirds of travellers prefer machines when booking air travel. Yes, this is, I mean, this was research conducted by CWT meetings and events. Uh, you know, they're a, they're a big fish. They know they know what they're talking about. I'll just reel off some uh, some other numbers here for you. So, yeah, as you say, 69% of business travellers uh, say they prefer to book their flights digitally. And that gets even higher, 78% of business travellers actually want to book their hotels digitally as well. Uh, ground transportation, so transfer, 71%. Uh, and checking in for flights wants to all be done digitally as well for 68%. However, when they're actually immersed in the experience, so when they're actually checking into a hotel, then they want to start bringing the face-to-face back into the equation. So it says here that uh, travellers are more receptive speaking to a person face-to-face when checking into their hotel, uh, some 46% and 51% checking out. So the face-to-face element is still important to them, but it comes later into the equation. I suppose that's probably to do with the level or element of customer service and being able to have conversations about what your exact requirements are when you actually get on the ground. Um, I mean, I'm probably, well, not probably, I'm definitely part of those statistics that will only do any of my bookings now online. Um, And it never happens via a third-party supplier or um, in a face-to-face or even a telephonic capacity anymore. Um, and that's purely for ease because if you've downloaded the right app and you use the same suppliers, you tend to be quite loyal. Um, if you're now also, certainly with flights, if you're a member of a loyalty scheme such as BA Executive Club or even EasyJet Plus Holder or whatever, it just makes life incredibly simple um, to have done it all beforehand. And you don't, also, it limits your time at the airport. I'm one of these terrible people that likes to turn up, much to the irritation of my husband who likes to get there three hours before a flight departs. I only turn up for an hour. <laughs> so we have this fight <laughs> before that's we leave it. the house. In the Jones style slide through <laughs> yeah, at the end exactly the exactly <laughs> with the rope um yeah no so um it just makes the whole thing a lot more streamlined in my mind <laughs> but you know interestingly enough 41 percent i'm absolutely coming at you with the percentages all this the evening all the numbers uh 41 percent of the business travelers who are kind of uh, who are asked here are all doing it over their phones as well not even just sitting at their desktop computer which i think is quite interesting and i think you know there's a lot of venue finding agencies and so on and uh, organizations in our world who are kind of in this sphere i wonder what the kind of future holds for them and how they're going to adapt their need to adapt their business models i mean it's a it's a very interesting space that is very exciting for high space i think i think it's what also i think is interesting about the statistic that people still want that face-to-face at the end it seems that at any any instance where you've kind of got hospitality machines can't replace that it's always going to be mm a people experience but anytime it's transactional then you just want that simple ease of use done on your phone and i think for groups um you know there are different dynamics in that it's not quite as simple as just booking x amount of bedrooms or x amount of space for which is obviously why you know higher space is is an interesting model um in that you kind of need that chat facility somehow to be able to actually your requirements are so much broader than just thinking i want to turn up on this date and i want to depart on this date and i want to have a bedroom with you know, two beds in it or one bed in it or whatever, if you're trying to deal with a conference room, you have to have a level of conversation to be able to 
determine whether, you know, you can have back projection, front projection, how many people need to be in the room, that kind of thing. Um, so perhaps there could be more, perhaps more people would do more of it online if you had a, um, you know, an, an informative chat element to it where you could actually have that kind of, you could have both, you could have the, the face um, to face scenario going on at the same time as being able to book things online and talk you through the process while you're doing it online sitting at your desk because sometimes actually you just think oh crikey I've got to you know pick up the phone someone's not going to you know understand what I'm talking about on the end of the telephone I'm then going to get put through to three other departments even if you want to pick up the phone to a hotel to have a conversation about you know from an agency perspective for a group that you're trying mm. to book into somewhere um, actually if you could do it online and somebody's just talking to you at, you know and chatting to you at the same time online it would Certainly, probably to my younger members of the team, they'd react very, very well to that because they don't really like having conversations on the telephone. Yeah, I mean, also, I mean, with travel accommodation becoming more automated, I mean, how long is it before kind of the whole events process is is kind of fully automated? Well, it's heading in that direction, isn't it, really? Mm. I mean, you know, it is an artificial intelligence situation now, isn't it? I mean, you go on bookings.com or, well, actually, other apps are available, uh, <laughs> to, you know, to try and find what you do. And, you know, you're going to be met by criteria that, that kind of suits your suits your search history and what you're looking for but at the end of the day an app can't you know smile at you and you know take care of those extra things that a lot of people in our industry want taken care of so i think there's still room for the human touch yet mm. well i mean just i guess thinking thinking more about like from the digital space we've got, got a headline here that is has san francisco just banned the use of facial recognition at events. Mm. Uh, I mean, the answer is no. They've what they've done is they've banned government agencies from employing facial recognition. Um, but I mean, where do you guys kind of stand on employing facial recognition at events? My laptop won't even recognise my face. So my question, my first question, when I and because there's quite a lot of, actually at IMEX about facial recognition um, software and you know the move into this space. Um, and it's absolutely well and good, but imagine you've got 500 people streaming through a door, all trying to get into an event, and you're trying to do facial recognition for everybody, and you've got to stand there. I mean, even, even the, the queues that you walk in for the automated passport scenario now, where you have to walk into the little cubicle and, you know, it then scans your face and all the rest of it, um, it often doesn't quite get you mm. or do it right or it has a moment or whatever. The panic would ensue if you install all of this equipment or you have this facility and you rely entirely on it that you know it's not actually as quick as it as it as it says it's going to be and from a logistics perspective i would be like oh god you know you see i i, I i'm a little bit of a cynic about facial recognition uh, it's very orwellian as far as i'm concerned i, I don't really see what value it brings to the events industry. I know the caper in San Francisco is, you know, as you correctly said, very much the security services not being able to have that sort of power over people. But there are still people campaigning for it to be banned outright in its entirety because they see it as a as a breach of their privacy. But even in the events world, I mean, like like Charlotte says, I mean, I'd be very nervous about having to go to an event knowing there's going to be a queue of you know 50 people long just to get in. When it's like seriously, you know, I don't you don't need to know my face on the badge. It doesn't yeah. doesn't matter. I'm scan not, I'm my not lanyard. Sure. I mean, you know, I mean, you know, the scanning machines are still yeah. relatively new to the whole to the whole process attached mm. to you know an iPad or whatever it is that's going to download the info. And more of a gimmick then than the kind of Orwellian. Yeah. I, I think so. Yeah. I mean, I'm you know, f let, let people write in and tell us you know tell us we're wrong, but I find it very difficult to see that it's actually got a tangible, meaningful benefit right now. Why is it any better? I think that's what we're asking. Yeah, I'd say so. 
I mean, do you think it raises any any trust issues? I mean, we've we've had you know we've had GDPR, we've had the kind of you know people increasingly worried about how companies are handling their data. Do you think people are going to be more trusting when companies are kind of handling their likeness? I, I, yeah, that's an interesting point. Uh, I think yeah, a lot of people are very protective about their data. And again, I reckon they'd be asking the same question. Why do you need to know my face? I mean, I, I don't get it. I really don't get it. I don't really get it either. I mean, I, I think there are much more efficient ways of, of dealing with with. with with elements of, of like this and you know i think certainly the older generation are really protective about about this about data and and about what this actually means because it's you know where where do you sort of draw the line with it i mean anybody i would imagine i could be completely off cue here but i would imagine anybody over the age of 50 is going to be like what is going on i mean seriously and that's a large portion actually of the audience that we deal with within the legal environment a lot of people that we're dealing with are between the age of sort of i'd say 48 and 65 um and they'd be like really no thanks i don't really want you to have my face on you know um on record well absolutely on a two-day show when you come in on the second morning and you're hung over then you, of course you're all going to be puffy and you know your eyes are going to be bloodshot you know yeah, they're exactly. not going to recognize you <laughs> um I guess yeah, finally, I mean, we've seen seen in the news today. BBC was covering this: the, the a thousand jobs are at risk with potentially the collapse of Jamie's Italian. Yeah, I'm quite um, maybe maybe I shouldn't be shocked by this, but um, I was quite surprised to read it actually. Um, and I think the challenge that Jamie Oliver's got is it's also being published that. Um, the people that are being fired were alerted to the administration via email 24 hours before the announcement actually came out publicly um, and are losing their jobs. And at the same time, he's just been publicised to be worth 230 million or something. And so, you know, all these people that have supposedly given him service for over sort of 10 years are now losing their jobs all over the UK. Um, So I think it's not going to be the best publicity stunt for him, really. I think he's going to be in quite a bit of uh, trouble. Well, I think this is another classic case of someone having their uh, name and abused. I mean, as you know, I'm, I'm just going to make sure higher space of the Vent Lab doesn't get into trouble here, but the <laughs> Daily Mail reports <laughs> allegedly, okay, that's it, I've done my, uh, my Ipsos duties, uh, that uh, it was Paul Hunt, who is actually Jamie Oliver's uh, brother-in-law, married to Jamie Oliver's sister. Uh, He was appointed to run the chain of restaurants. Uh, So he was running it, and there are allegations, I stress there are allegations, in the press that he was banned from working in the city for insider trading, and he even made a, allegedly, a PR, sorry, a PA, uh, type out her own redundancy letter. So it doesn't sound like it was being particularly managed well if the reports in the mainstream press are to be believed. Uh, and there's some big salary figures and bonuses being battered around here as well. To me, it just sounds like the most appalling mismanagement situation. And Jamie Oliver, as an individual, uh, I don't think is to blame. Uh, it's his reputation damaged and, mm. of course, up to, what, 1,300 people who now stand to lose their jobs. Yeah, which, which is terrible. I mean, well, I think the, lots of the BBC sort of talk about lots of reasons that it might be failing. I thought one of the interesting points was they mentioned that a lot of chain restaurants seem to be struggling. I mean, are people losing their appetite for these kind of brands like Byron, it mentions, uh, Strada, Coluccio's. I mean, do you think the the people in general are kind of falling out of love with the idea of a chain restaurant? They want something more unique? I think everybody's looking for that experiential thing, mm. isn't it? It comes back, it comes back to that again. Um, and I, that's why I'm quite surprised because 
personally, the, the menu, I mean, Barbacoa is a great restaurant. I mean, the food in there was pretty exceptional. And that's not a chain scenario. I mean, it was definitely set up to be a unique um, experience based on wherever the cheap side or wherever it was. Um, so, um, you know, I think that maybe people are also, rather than going out for lunch to Jamie's, they're actually popping into Itsu. I think there's probably a big I think, kind of gap there. Yeah, I think the market is is saturated in this in this area. I think I remember when I was a kid in the late eighties and early nineties, going out for a family meal. I mean, we were limited to Pizza Hut pretty much. That was the only place you could really go. Not that there's anything wrong with Pizza Hut, uh, but. <laughs> At the time, back then, there was there was no Carluccio's or anything like that on the high street. You know, my local town, Kingston Town Centre, where I grew up, was was shops, but there wasn't really much in the way of restaurants. Uh, but in the last decade or so, that or twenty years, it has really burst onto the scene. And you know, you go anywhere now, and it's just restaurant after restaurant after restaurant after restaurant. And even at lunchtime, most of them are are empty. So I think it's just a hyper competitive environment. And if you aren't standing out, if you aren't doing anything unique, then you're gonna you're gonna suffer. And then you've got places um, like Megan's, as an example, which is probably a much more boutique, a much more unique version of a likes of a Carluccio's, mm. where it's very, very deli-based, um, but beautifully done and, you know, with walls of floral ceilings and beautiful terraces, like indoor, outdoor terraces and stuff. And they seem to be growing. Um, and there seems to be another one popping up, you know, um, Clapham and Fulham and wherever, you know, in different boroughs. And so maybe it is the, the uniqueness of finding that sort of boutique kind of, you know, um, scenario, which is how Coat started actually originally, just by having a couple in those kind of you know, sort of mid-tier boroughs of of, of London um, with a very sort of broad menu. But Coat seems to have done incredibly well. Mm. Well, I, mean, I think we're always, we're always seeing this kind of stats about, I guess, my generation want, you know, with they want a unique experience. Um, and like similar stats for how, how people aren't going out as much anymore. So when I guess when we do go out and we want to spend some money on a, on a nice meal, the a place that's a brand a chain seems less appealing than a more unique experience like a more boutique place a more exciting place that is perhaps independent and not one of the major chains and i think the branding probably of these places has actually got a lot to do with it i mean as an example somewhere like um coat it's got that sort of french brazzy sort of feel or whatever it feels mm. cozy it's therefore brilliant in the winter or whatever something about jamie's it never felt that's an interesting one because there are others. I'm, I'll name drop a few, mm. but the likes of Prezzo and uh, College. Mm. In fact, if, if, if you actually took the, the restaurant name off the wall and there was no visual name anywhere in the restaurant, I bet you wouldn't be able to tell the difference if you were in a Jamie's or Prezzo or Carluccio's yeah. or whatever. I mean, there's very much of a of an identikit sort of environment. And, you know, they all, the food is, again, six to one, half a dozen to the other. Nothing really stands them apart. Yeah, you want to feel like you're getting... A good experience for your money. You don't want, you know, a stock thing that you know that is everywhere. And, and they and, and you're absolutely right. They all sort of felt and looked the same. You're absolutely right. I think that's part of the problem. Yeah. Well, yeah. I think it's been it's been a good news digest. <laughs> <laughs> you made me really hungry now. Don't say digest. <laughs> I know. <we'll> have to. <laughs> yeah. um, no, it, and and it's you know it's interesting. It'll be interesting to see. You know, um, it seems as though that at the moment we're reading in the newspapers that, you know, big companies, well, certainly, you know, companies are going in, into administration. I mean, that, you know, James isn't the only one. You know, obviously, British Steel is, is another one, 25,000 jobs going there. Um, I read the other day that Thompson is literally about to go bust. So, 
Um, you know, there's a whole wave and change of how people are buying as well. And that's probably at the crux of it, isn't it? And it's important for a business. And this goes to everyone in the events industry as well. They, you've got to stay ahead of, of the curve. There's absolutely no excuse for stalling. And unfortunately, you do look at the likes of, uh, of Thompson and so on. And you think, you know what, you are. You're old fashioned now. I mean, I went to Wimpy. There's a Wimpy near where I live in Horsham. All right. Do you, do you know Wimpy? I think I've seen one. Once. You've seen one. There's one in Borden. <laughs> they're the only two left in the world. And I thought, in a moment of nostalgia, went in there the other week, and I was vomiting within an hour. It was just like it was in the. It was horrendous. Oh, no. All right. You see, we've got to be careful here. <laughs> You've got yeah. to be careful. You've got to stay up to date. You can't just you serve food that you did in the 70s. It doesn't work, <laughs> especially if the burger was actually built or made in the 70s, which yeah. I definitely think it was. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think things are in flux. I mean, there's those three stories there. There's lots, lots to follow on, yeah, see how absolutely. they develop. Absolutely. Well, anyway, it'd be interesting to see what uh, what what Ed reports back from, from IMEX yeah. um, oh. in a couple of weeks' time as well, because I know that he's out there. If and, he's recovered. Uh, if he's recovered from his... Uh, his uh his time of going out and having fun um and um yeah thank yeah. you very much for, well, thanks for, for sitting me on, in the guys. hot seat <laughs> goodbye everyone <laughs> goodbye everybody <laughs> lovely to see you george thanks to the news digest team for looking after me there ed will return next episode up next i'm sitting down with mia butler the director of pistachio view a video marketing tool Mia has had many years' experience in the events industry, including working as a sales professional at the Meetings Industry Association. So today I am joined by Mia Butler, the director at Pistachio View. Mia, welcome to the podcast. Thank you very much. I'm excited. So we've got seven minutes with you. We're going to be asking you some questions. Okay. Kick off with an easy one. Are you a, are you a cat person or a dog person? A dog yeah, there's no debate on this one. We've got a dog at home. There's an office dog. He's Dave. We're very loyal to the FD. He's part of the company. And yeah, dog through and through, I'm afraid. Strong answer. What, what breed is Dave? Dave's a Jack Russell. Yeah. Nice. And uh, he supports the brand well. Good dog. What's your favourite cocktail? It has to be champagne-based. So I'm kind of a mimosa girl, a Key Royale. I kind of like the bubbles. Very fancy. Mm, makes me sound a bit classy, right? <laughs> What is your favourite international events destination? Okay, I'm going to go for Barcelona this time. I don't know whether it's because I've got a bit of a summer vibe because the sun shines out, but Barcelona is great for just like loads of reasons. It's dead, dead easy to get to. You've got that mix of like coast and architecture and city. And I also like the 360 feel of it as well because it, it stays awake. Barcelona is a great place to, you know, go out and hang out and just have great food and tapas and what's not to like. Barcelona is a great Complete destination. Experience. Yeah. I guess, what's the best surprise you've ever had at an event? Okay, so this came to me today as I was walking through London. So I had a little wander through Leicester Square. And it took me back to you know, some 20-odd years ago, actually. And I went to a premiere event at one of the, the cinemas on Leicester Square. And it was the first time I'd ever experienced real personalisation. So they had the red carpet mm. with the fake paparazzi. And we all went down the red carpet with this fake paparazzi shouting your name, you know, so it was Mia, you know, it's great to see you. And, and it was the first time I sort of like experienced this sort of seamless personalisation, which made me feel special. And, and I guess that's kind of poignant because, you know, personalisation yeah. is a big part of what, you know, so what my business is. Yeah. yeah. So that one really stood out to me today. It's sort of like, you know, just came back in a little bit of a memory flash. So personalisation on the red carpet, I liked it. 
if you were to go back to the start of your career, mm. what's the piece of advice you would give yourself now? I think it would be embrace social media sooner. So I think I was one of those people that sort of logged into LinkedIn a while, you know, and just sort of lurked around for a while and didn't really embrace getting involved in the community. And, you know, I've only really got involved in the events community wholeheartedly you know in the last few years and I wish I'd done more sooner like in that you know commenting engaging and sort of working with the thought leaders out there so yeah it's a little bit of reflection on social media. Do you think there are any kind of misconceptions that that people have about what it's like to work in the industry? I think we've got a lot better at being clear about what the events industry is about. We often talk about the fact that we struggle to attract staff and we struggle to retain them and, you know, we're not investing in the people. So we still talk about those subjects, but I don't think we talk enough about the positives as well. So I think the misconception is about how rewarding it is. I think we're failing to tell people just how much we can get out of our careers, you know, whether it be by the type of thought leaders we work with, the destinations we travel to, the experiences we go through. And the fact that we're really sort of well-rounded in what we do. So it's not just like frontline customer focus, we're sales, we're marketing. We're really diverse in our roles in the events industry. And I think People don't understand how much they can get, you know, in their personal branding by being a part of this industry. It's a great industry to be in. Mm. I mean, do you think much has changed since you kind of first got got into events? Definitely. I just mentioned personal branding. um, And I think that's really important. You know, for quite a long time, people just sort of lived under the corporate umbrella of who they worked for. And we've been given a voice now. You know, it's really important that employees of, you know, many organisations are enabled to talk about who they are, what they believe, as well as living the visions and values of a company. And I think that's really exciting to see people personally develop and bring a brand to life because ultimately we we often buy the person first uh, above a brand. So I quite like the way that, you know, that's really shining to seeing people's personal branding come to light. Mm. Do you have any key tips for kind of building that good kind of relationship that you can use for sales? So there's a lot of good stuff coming up in the sales community now in the fact that, you know, we are engaging with people and it's not about, you know, just hunting people. It's attracting the right type of people to come to you. And we do that by sharing great insight, using good content, really, you know, commenting on what people are saying and being involved. So I like that sense of community that sales is becoming. And, you know, it's not about, you know, that hard salesman type, you know, perception that people have. It is this nice community feel that attracts the ideal customer to you. So if you're saying the right thing, good stuff will happen. Once you've attracted your your kind of customers and clients in, how do you maintain that contact with them without appearing kind of too pushy? Well, the easy answer is just to ask. You know, once you have made a connection with somebody, I think it's important to ask their permission of what's best moving forward. And and, And that's what works for me is, you know, we make an agreement and we say, you know, well, what should we do now? Should we speak this often? Or, you know, is, is WhatsApp best? Because again, you know, people don't communicate in the same ways as they did before. You know, it's it's okay to send somebody an instant message or, you know, just connect with them through LinkedIn or whatever. There are different ways to communicate. So it's about, you know, understanding that person and checking with them what's right for them um, and then sticking to it. You know, if you want to, you know, 
keep that person loyal to you, then you have to keep those promises too. So whatever you set out, just keep those promises. That's really important. Yeah, maintain the trust in the relationship. For sure, definitely. Do you have a favourite venue? Ooh, okay. So I'm a bit of a fan of the staycation this year, you know, running your own business, you know, luxury holidays may go this year. So I'm really at one with the English countryside and why wouldn't we be? So Farncombe Estate. Oh, it just love the Cotswolds and the Farncombe Estates are something really magic every time you drive up. It's just got this awesome sense of arrival and you distance yourself immediately from work, stress, strain, city life, everything. So I think there's a, a real value in just getting out to the countryside. So I'm going to pick Farncombe Estate today. No offence to everybody yeah. else. Thank you so much for joining us. It's been, oh. it's been really great. Thanks for having me. It's my pleasure. It's more sales talk now, as I'm joined by Ed Curra, the creative director at Vinyl Impression, a design-focused surface graphics specialist. We explore the world of modern sales in the events industry, including valuable advice for using video as a sales tool. Hi, Ed. Welcome to the Event Lab podcast. It's great to have you on. Thank you, George. Great to be here. Thank you for having me. So we are chatting sales today, but I thought just before we get into that, we'd love to hear a little bit about your uh, yeah background at Vinyl Impression. Absolutely. Basically, my story in a nutshell is that I started Vinyl Impression, my business, seven years ago in my bedroom. My wife and I moved into a flat where our landlord wouldn't really let us do anything in the space. And that is uh, a joy and a challenge because you don't damage stuff, but also it doesn't look very nice. And my wife makes ballroom dresses for Strictly Come Dancing and Dancing on Ice. So she is a a talented girl and I'm also quite creative myself. And we just couldn't stand having a white blank flat, essentially. Mm. So I did some research on what was available in the market in terms of what could be done in, you know, kind of non-damaging items that could decorate a, a, a temporary space. And I basically didn't find much that I was very inspired by. So I decided to create my own wall stickers, a range of stickers, built a website in my bedroom uh, in the evenings on the side of my my kind of day job. And it blew up. The website went crazy, started getting orders like a lot, which was which was good fun. Uh, And essentially promoted from that point to quitting my job and starting the company officially in my in-laws garage. For the last seven years, we've been working at doing the vinyl stickers thing but we've bolted onto that a load of b2b side of the business where we work with clients to decorate their offices and we call that office branding Mm. and then we've got the same in the events industry uh, where we work with clients of all shapes and sizes big corporates charities and anybody in between um, to to essentially decorate their event Uh, and then the final bit that we do is working with event venues where we partner with them And we essentially go in and give a load of uh, helpful tools like a branding document, measurements, pictures, etc. That just help them show clients what their venue can look like with branding in it. And that just really helps them imagine what could be done. Yeah, I mean, a lot of that work has helped to make Event Lab events look so great. Thank you. Yes, yes, Uh, absolutely. But I mean, so just just getting started... um, Kind of what, what advice would you have for establishing like a good first connection with someone that is a potential customer? I think this is really, it comes for me really down to understanding the customer because the better you can understand the customer, the better you can really serve them. Hmm. And I think sales really is more about understanding what somebody's end goal is, not just how your little bit, you know, fits into that process. Uh, and so 
I, I love Peter Drucker, and one of the things that, that he says, the aim of marketing is to know and understand the customer so well that the product sells itself. And I love that. I think that's great. I mean, that's, 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 that's ideal. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> and I, I think there's also people like Henry Ford have also talked about the fact that if he'd asked his customers what they wanted, that they would have said a faster horse. Mm. But what he created was a car. And it's wonderful how you can have innovation as well as being someone that is uh, passionate about your business. However, getting to know the customer so much so that you can interpret what they're or imagine what they might want in future, mm. that that's really knowing your customer. Mm-hmm. A little, doing a little preparation for this, I was chatting with the like the sales team at Highspace, mm-hmm. uh, and they brought up, uh, I guess, like video as an emerging tool as a way to engage with people. I guess, how do you see it being used, and kind of yeah. do you have any tips for using? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So actually, I um, I went to an AIM event uh, not that long ago, about uh, six or eight months ago, and there was a lady there who was talking about video and using it in sales videos, mm. and I decided to have a little look into it and research it, and I was absolutely fascinated by the whole concept. So I do know a fair bit about the whole video in the sales process Uh, and I use a a system called BombBomb and essentially it allows me to make videos on my iPhone or on my uh, computer uh, and essentially give a personal message to a client when they get in touch and I think that the the major point for me is I'm quite an enthusiastic person. I love yep. getting in front of clients. I love meeting people face to face. And as a salesperson, you're always frustrated when you can't do that. Uh, the great thing is that video allows you to literally transport yourself into the room. If, if a picture tells a thousand words, video transports you into the room. And I think that's one of the things that I think is going to make video really excel over the next few years and, and, and beyond, really. Interesting. So it's a, it's a way of getting like making that personal connection faster than because I guess a lot of people might think about it as a way to show your product but what you can really show is yourself and use that to build your relationship yeah definitely I really agree yeah yeah and actually I think with anybody that you buy something from especially when you're spending a decent amount of money or if you're someone that is um, relatively high up in a company your time is limited and you want to trust the person that you're buying from and I think trust comes from knowing someone a little more and email is just so cold and impersonal I I think email for me is one of the biggest things that needs a revolution in our industry uh, because it just doesn't serve the purposes that I feel it it needs to and so video is one of the ways that I think I think I, I can see that changing. I mean, do you have any, have, have any advice for, I guess, creating those little like personal videos that you would you would send out to people? Good question. Yeah, I think it's quite daunting when you start. Yeah. <laughs> so just try, get started with something is probably the, the the first thing. Just give it a go and and don't watch them back too much. You will know from recording the video whether you've done a good video or not. <laughs> so don't try and watch it back too much because you can get yeah. overcritical. Uh, so that would be my first tip. And then probably secondly, be yourself. If you try and be like, hey, I'm this you know, character and you put on this voice and stuff, yeah. you're like, that isn't the real you. People want to know the real you. So uh, those are the first two. And then obviously just get a decent phone. You've mm. probably already got one in your pocket. Uh, so it is so simple to, 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 to kind of improve that service. And if you think about it from a, for example, from a venue's perspective, the ability to say, hi, Claudia, thank you so much for getting in touch with us. We'd love to host your event here. This is the space that I was talking to you about on email and just doing a little video holding it up in the venue to say, this is the space we're just setting up at the moment for another event coming up in two days. Just wanted to show you the, you know, what the space looks like. And it's over here that I'm recommending you put the registration desk and it's here that you should put the DJ booth. That flipping it. 
that goes a million miles different yeah, like from comparing that to an email where it's just yeah oh. honestly and i think it's those sort of things that venues and uh, people in the event industry that cotton on to this system this this whole kind of for me i see it as mm. a wave of transformation they're gonna go far i think yeah i mean so i mean just just kind of thinking a little bit about selling in the events world in general mm. do you think like there's anything unique about i guess sales and kind of relationships in the events world compared to mm. other areas that yeah i suppose for me obviously everybody knows in the event industry speed is key yeah you know people don't have lots of time um and they want to get you know if you're a supplier particularly they want to know that they if they're going out to three people you want to be the first to get back to them and say yes i'm working on this here's a quote be as quickly as quick as you can to respond um i think other things in the event industry that that is obviously quite quite key are just um things like just making sure that you really know your stuff. Yeah. Uh, some of the best site visits that I've been on have been ones where this, the person who's who's been at the venue has really known their stuff. You could turn up to a site visit and a client asks a question and the venue doesn't know the answer and says, I'll get back to you on that. It just hinders the conversation and stops the flow. So I think knowing your stuff is key as well. Yeah, I mean... Um so we had we had Kevin Jackson on on the podcast. Uh, I think it was, I think November last year. Mm. Um, I think I heard that one. Yeah, yeah. And he so he and he was he was kind of chatting about uh, his book and his his kind of his idea that there's no such thing as sales. That it's all sure. about you're not trying to sell. You're trying to just build a relationship, and that will eventually lead to sales. Whether that's yes. like a week later, a year down the line, it's all about Absolutely, cultivating yeah. a relationship, not trying to sell. I mean, do you agree with that? In a, I guess in in a lot of the time you've you have you know, there's a pressure to sell i i definitely agree with kevin in that it, it does depend on the kind of business that you're in i don't know anyone at amazon but i buy products from the website all the time and it's the service that i feel i've fallen in love with rather mm-hmm. than the person or the or the the process rather than the person that i feel like i've fallen in yeah. love with at amazon because i know i can get it the next day i i just love that whole thing However, when you're buying something of higher value that you are meeting someone, I do think that if you aim to meet the client's needs and be helpful to them first, I certainly think you'll build relationship out of that. So I think we're in a we are we're in a different era, I think, because in the same instance, Hirespace would be putting through a huge number of clients that through your website that you may not have ever met before but people trust and love the site Mm. and love the service you offer so it's an interesting question almost to bounce back at you guys to say do you feel like that's true because actually in your industry you're kind of debunking that whole high touch you know high value clients to potentially some more lower touch and higher volume so what do you what i mean i think i think i think i think you're right there with with the balance i mean a lot of clients do need a personal touch and the relationship is absolutely key they need to make sure that they've got a personal service yeah. uh, like a bespoke service uh, but for a lot of people who need events quickly they need a venue quickly they need a quick turnaround or you know if they're booking something next week they need That's that right. speed of service and so they're not provide... interested in who your kids are yeah. and where you went on holiday last year they want to know tell me more about this space and i need to book it now and so provi- take my money yeah. basically <laughs> and so yeah so it's like and so because we're like providing service that it's simple it's yes. easy you get a venue that is is right for you that service is is what is so great about that agreed yeah yeah an interesting one to yeah. pose as a question yeah and just just talking a little bit about um like sponsorships now i guess uh from from your perspective like what does a productive relationship look like between uh an event and a, an event sponsor 
I think you always have to get your values aligned between a sponsor and, and a, a person running an event. Uh, when those jar, it just doesn't work. Um, I think another thing would just be a genuine interest from the person running the event in the sponsor. So it's difficult to get behind a sponsor that is just throwing money at you, but you don't really care about them as a supplier or as a sponsor. Um, and I feel like the, the, the events that we sponsor as a company, we, we really do match on those, which is good. Um, I think it would be good for us to, to kind of make sure that uh, we're asking sponsors at the end of an event did you feel you got good return on investment from this event? And asking a question like that can be quite intimidating for a company to do or a, uh, an event runner to do because they think, what if they say no? What if they said, we didn't make any money out of that event, but we sponsored it by £20,000? However, you can say, well, look, let me help in these four ways and you're more likely to get that sponsor on the following year because you can say to them, well, I'll improve that. I'll do something about that. I'll introduce you to you know, such and such company next time. Um, also, I went to uh, this AMI event that I mentioned before. One of the com- one of the um, suppliers that they had at the event was a company called Blendology, great company that do badges that you tap onto someone else's badge and it buzzes and the lights flash. Fantastic bit of equipment that just from a technology perspective allowed people to really connect quickly mm. at the event. And it was a really fun networking tool. They did a little competition to win a champagne bottle for the person that um, tapped than most other people. And yeah. it was just, a, I've, bi- I've built up more connections at that event than any other. So that was a great way of uh, bringing tech in as well. And that was one where I just saw it successfully done. Uh, so that was that was good as well. Yeah, no, exciting. Just finally, I wanted to get your opinion on how to, I guess, stand out when you know you're pitching against potentially other, like, you, like competitive pitching. Really, great question. What, what tips would you have for that? I think, um, I think as a salesperson, I like to ask a lot of questions before I start loading in with lots of information. If I'm on a phone call with a client, or I'm on an email conversation with a client. Uh, I will try and get to know as much about the event as possible, so that I can tailor the answers that I give. When you just try and put your best foot forward all the time as a salesperson and you're just going gung-ho about, well, this is why we're the best company in the world, yeah. it's a bit bravado-y and it's a bit like, well, you haven't even asked me a single question. You know, we, you've talked about this other event that you've done. You've name-dropped three other companies that you've worked with before. None of, like, I don't want to know about that. I want to know about what's going to, essentially getting to the point yeah. as quickly as possible. Um, so I think ask lots of questions so that you can, uh, one of the great questions, for example, is what things really bug you about venues, as yeah. an example. So if you're on a site visit with a client around your venue, you say, out of interest, out of the last three events that you've done, what things really bugged you about the last venues you worked with? And they might say, oh, well, the catering was on time, but there just wasn't enough food or whatever the thing is and you go okay i'll note that down and make sure that never happens with us and then you you haven't solved the problem you've just promised to solve the problem you know that your team is capable of solving that problem it's great you've it listened sh- to the shows, client. it shows that you you know you care about them and that ultimately they're what matters to you yeah, not exactly your past achievements and it, and as a company you want to know that they're going to be successful at meeting their targets but also as an individual person they're the one making the decision you want to make them happy because that's what means they'll book you again and and I think when you, yeah, when you try and put barriers up, that can make it, it just doesn't build good relationship in the same way. So ask lots of questions, find out as much information as you can. It's the best way to do it. Yeah, really valuable advice. Well, yeah, thank you so much for, for joining us on the podcast. You're welcome. Thank you for having me and cheers. 
finally, the entries for the Higher Space Awards are now open. The Higher Space Awards celebrate the very best of the events industry by recognising and rewarding hard-working, innovative and forward-thinking venues and event bookers from across the UK. If that sounds like we just described you or your company, we want to hear from you. You can find all the details on how to enter on the Event Lab website. That link and links to everything we've mentioned in the episode are in the show notes below. If you enjoy the show, make sure to rate us on iTunes or your podcast app of choice. It really makes a difference. You can follow all that we do on Twitter and Instagram using the handle at eventlab underscore online. If you have any questions you'd like to submit to the News Digest or you'd like to get in contact with the show, you can email us at eventlab at highspace.com. Thanks very much for listening.